He always wanted to, as he said, be the, the lighting man who wanted to bring out the best possible work the artist could do and really make the public see it, you know, visible, just like a lighting man would on a stage for, for an actor. Hey, this is author Greg Renoff, and you're on the road with Dane on WGN. 720 WGN, high atop Chicago in the Skyline studio. Excited to have on the the author of the best-selling book, Van Halen Rising, how a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal and all the behind-the-scenes on the origins of one of our favorite and one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. His current book, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, gives us the backstory to the story behind the story of that and so much more. The one and only Dr. Greg Ranoff. Welcome to WGN. Hey, Dane. Great to be on with you. Thanks again. Yeah, well, it's great to have you on, and this has been one of, over the last, i got to tell you, and I'm sure you get a lot of this same feedback over the last few years, you know, one of kind of my my favorite interviews, but one of the interviews that is rare in the way that it touches on something that is part of, even to this day, an everyday conversation, but about Van Halen, but given a lot of that inside and backstory and kind of deep sort of investigative reporting in ways that you just don't find anymore. And so when it comes to Ted Templeman, I got to think about it. When I would look at whether it was, you know, the records or my cassette tapes, you know, Ted Templeman's name was there almost as prominent as as kind of a band member. Like you didn't really know, of course, he was cloaked in mystery. You never knew back then exactly who he was or what he did. And his uh, backstory working with the Dewey Brothers, Nicolette Larson, Van Morrison, Eric Clapton. Do you think, and I'm sure you you discovered all of this, that Ted Templeman is he mostly associated with Van Halen, or does he get enough credit for all those other things he's done? You know, yeah, I mean, I think from talking to him over that period of months, I worked with him one-on-one um, -on -one in the book, and then putting the book together and working with him on the drafts. I, I think, you know, I got a much broader appreciation for his contribution to pop music and rock music in the 70s and 80s. I think, you know, for me, and probably like you and a lot of people, Van Halen may have been the number one band that uh, I associated as a record producer, Ted Templeman, with. But, you know, when you look at the Doobie Brothers, particularly... You know, uh, they were a little bit before my time, but the success that they had was well, starting with their second album, with Ted produced for them um, up through 1980 when they won all the Grammys. I mean, that was really a, an incredible, incredible run for those guys. They had uh, hit single after hit single, and in fact, one of the things that really was cool to talk to Ted about was that navigating uh, of the lineup change that he had to uh, oversee from uh, Tom Johnson, who dropped out of the group around 1975 and was replaced by uh, Michael McDonald. And that whole shift in sound kind of going from a wow. kind of a hang tough uh, rock and roll band to much more of a soulful um, pop band that they became under Michael McDonald. And I think that's the thing that for me was really eye opening was to hear about, you know, the doobies and a lot of the other acts he worked with, you know, even though, as I, as we already mentioned, you know, Van Halen was maybe the number one act that I would think that, you know, people would, would associate with Ted Templeman, but you know, Ted was there from all those albums and again, oversaw that, uh, enormous change in sound. I mean, there's really, if you listen to the early doobies versus the later doobies, it's a, almost a totally different band in terms of the sound. Well, looking at some of the excerpts from the book and, and some of the things, and he sort of did that, right? Is it, you know, there's some producers that just take what's in front of them and make the most out of what it is that they have to work with. But he, whether it was the inspiration or kind of, you know, finding those perfect fits or even just that gut feeling that he had about Van Halen and other situations in music, was that one of the things that was maybe one of his gifts that sort of transcend just the, do the unquote, the quote, uh, you know, kind of producer role is that he really did have sort of this kind of vision for how things should sound and what people would like. 
But yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's really was uh, was front and center when we talk is that that's uh, one of the main jobs of a record producer, at least it was, and maybe not as much anymore, but that definitely was that a band would come um, into a studio and the record producer will have worked with them in pre-production and rehearsals and getting their songs together, but the, the, you know, that they would have, or he or she would have as a producer had a conception of what they wanted the record to sound like and then what they wanted to do with the material. And that's, you know, one of the things that was really interesting about the book with Ted too, is that, you know, there were times where he clashed with the the artists. I mean, he really was trying to maybe <laughs> right. see an artist forward in their career. And, you know, he always wanted to, as he said, be the, the lighting man who wanted to bring out the best possible um, work that the artist could do and really just make the public see it, you know, visible, just like a lighting man would on a stage for, for an actor. But, you know, there were times with, with Sammy and Hagar and with Van Halen where Ted had a different conception of what he thought um, they should do in terms of their material. And there's always that, you know, there's that kind of that push and pull, just like it is with a, with a band member. I mean, the same thing inside a band where one band member might want um, the band to go a certain direction creatively and the other band member might want a different direction. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely this idea of a, of a vision. And, you know, sometimes that vision was kind of very, very close to what the artists already had in mind. Other times Ted was trying to push them to do something maybe different than they wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, you look at it as far as that kind of the believing in, and you look at the results in some of these bands and some of the works, and the results are undeniable. But were you surprised, you know, or, or was he surprised? And how did he convey that when it came to kind of explaining, especially on Van Halen early on? You know, he believed in that band and kind of the potential and what it could be, pretty much right from the get go. But but not everybody was on board with this. He had to do some convincing, maybe throwing maybe some of his other successes in there as, as sort of, uh, I don't know, credibility in order to get things done with Van Halen. Yeah, that was really an eye opener for me. Uh, when I really got to talk to Ted in great detail about what it was like for him as their producer for Van Halen. I mean, I think when he finished the record, and it was done and it hadn't come out yet. Ted was super excited. He thought this band is incredible and they thought they had really done an amazing record. I don't think, you know, I know for a fact he didn't think it was going to go platinum or, you know, even maybe even go gold, but he thought it was going to be a, a successful, well-received rock record, maybe in the kind of in the spirit of the Montrose record. But he, he talked to me a lot about how, how bummed he was when he talked around the record company. And a lot of people <laughs> right. in the record company executives were just sort of like, ah, it's all right. You know, you, that's nice that you like it, Ted, but we don't think it's going to, do anything because we, you know, we just Warner Brothers had just signed a deal with the Sex Pistols and disco and soft rock were kind of the the taste of the day. And you know, it, Ted talked about how much he really wanted to try to help those guys behind the scenes, kind of you know, basically do everything he could in that dual role as not just a record producer, but he was also a vice president of Warner Brothers. But basically, kind of work back in Burbank at the headquarters to try to really get people pumped up about Van Halen and anything he could do to sort of steer resources towards those guys uh, doing their best. And he. He talked about that in the, in the, you know, in the context of the fact that how broke those guys was. I mean, I think that was one of the things that he really (laughs) emphasized to me. He talked about how, you know, Eddie and Alex were driving in this old beat up van and that Eddie's car was, the door was literally kept closed by guitar strings. He would loop guitar strings to the, to the lock to keep it closed. So it wouldn't open when it would move because the lock was broken. And, you know, he talked about that, you know, those guys were hungry and they'd worked. So he, he knew from talking to those guys, they'd been at it for years and had gotten nowhere. And so he was kind of, you know, really wanted to see those guys, um, you know, make it maybe more than like a, you know, he might have worked with established artists who had already had career success or something. And for him, it was much more of a personal thing to really try to, you know, get these guys um, their their notoriety out there. Yeah, let the listeners know we're talking with uh, Greg Renoff, author of Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's, producer's Life. Uh, in, in music, that is so crazy that you say that because you look at, of course, what's happened now and and just kind of the accolades and the acceptance and all that. And when I listen, when I think about it, 
uh, you know, that first Van Halen record was one of the sort of epiphanal moments in in music. I, I and I don't yeah. know how you could be a record executive listening to lots of stuff all day, every day, and still. I mean, I get it; it's a lot of music, but this was so different from the guitar playing to just kind of the the power of it and everything when they were listening to that to that record. I don't know how they couldn't have seen that because it was one of those almost similar to maybe when Nirvana with. Teen Spirit, you know, where it's sort of yep. from that moment on, the entire music scene was different. I, I, he saw that. I can't believe others didn't. I just think that they were sort of, you know, sort of locked into what had been successful. I and mean, I, I talked about this in Van Halen Rising was that just that, you know, that kind of, you know, guitar driven hard rock that was, you know, really focused on solos and kind of screams. And that's what they would have heard. And what they, you know, it's just sort of like a, you know, like a, a smoothed over deep purple or something. I mean, I think that's literally what they, what they, what a lot of the guys in the label thought. I mean, they were really, you know, the strip scene at the time on, in Hollywood on Sunset Strip, you know, the Ramones were coming to town, um, the talking heads, Blondie, you know, that was sort of seen as the, as the cutting edge, what was going to be the big thing coming next. And I, you know, this seemed like more of a hangover from the early seventies, but, uh, you know, Ted really appreciated particularly the musicality of Eddie Van Halen. And I think that's one thing too, that, Ted himself is a is a musician, musician, and he talked to me a lot about the fact that he thought a lot of record executives didn't quite get Van Halen because they didn't understand how amazing Eddie Van Halen was. They're like, yeah, whatever he plays, you know, he's fast or whatever he plays these solos, but they didn't quite get the the incredible talent there and of the whole band, but particularly wow. Ed, who Ted saw as like this game changing guitar player before anyone else did. And he, you know, he was right. I mean, so yeah, um, yeah, a big uh, a big real. Uh, real landmark in Ted's career. And, oh. and he talks about how the, the uh, song that's his favorite out of any song he ever produced for any band. There's a lot of songs. Uh, and he talking about love by Van Halen from the first Van Halen record. So that kind of tells you where Van Halen stands in his, his heart. Well, you, you think of it, just the technique and everything, it had changed, forget about music in general, but just the guitar players and all those young players coming up that emulated what it is that he did that had never been done before. Yep. It was it was completely groundbreaking. I, so I think from the from the musicianship, you had everything there. I mean, it was tough for people. They could say it wasn't their cup of tea or, or what they thought would be popular or would resonate with people, but they can't compare or complain about the musicianship. But it seemed like the hard thing was selling David Lee Roth and you bring ain't talking about love you bring up the the lyrics everything that's so signature about the kind of the the power and I think the unique um attraction of Van Halen and what it is that they brought to it and that was one of the things that they had to do you and I have talked at length about whether it's David Lee Roth and, and his appeal or not appeal but that was one of the tough sells right selling Dave for Ted I mean I think you know I think if you read the book, anyone reads the book, that they'll really see that that Ted's first initial huge pull towards Van Halen when he wanted to sign them that, that first couple of days when he first saw them was Ed. You know, he liked the band as a whole. He thought they had good songs and he liked them, but he thought this kid is the is the is the next big thing. He really was just enraptured by how amazing the guitar playing was. And then when they got in the studio to do the demos for the first record, so this was months before they actually recorded the record. You know, Ted really came away underwhelmed by Roth as a vocalist. Uh, you know, this is a guy who was a vocalist himself had worked with, you know, like Michael McDonald and worked with Carly Simon and worked right. with the, you know, uh, Sammy Hagar, you know, guy, uh, you know, guys and um, men and women who were probably much more able in the studio and Roth sort of, you know, was not polished and not smooth and really was not a finished product. And so Ted was worried that Dave wasn't going to be able to basically cut it in the studio as a, as a studio performer, you know, you can go out on the road, but you know, this, this, you know, the, the, it's difficult if the person can't uh, pull it off inside the studio, but Ted 
did a 180 on Dave over the over the course of the next few weeks working with him on the lyrics and kind of seeing it. Look, you know, there's things he does well, and we're gonna we're gonna emphasize that. And Ted talked about how much you know he quickly became really the biggest you know the, one of the biggest cheerleaders around of, of Raw just because of you know so the, the personality, the the swagger, the the vocal things he did do really well, which we know from the Van Halen records, and that Dave was a hard worker. I mean, that's the thing too that Ted really emphasizes that Raw was a professional that he went in there, you know, he had this image of whatever, you know, kind of this party guy, but when it came time to work, he worked and he would work with Ted long hours to get things, you know, if they needed to, to get things right. So he really became, you know, a, a guy who was ultimately willing to plant the flag and say, it's for me, it's not Van Halen without Dave. This is in 1985 when they were breaking up and just, he said, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't stomach anything else, but Dave and the band that was, cause that was what Van Halen was to me. Yeah. Well, and you look at it too, and this is a guy that may not get that credit for that. And you mentioned the image is sort of a, a party guy and, and, and what it was, but he was one of those. He kind of took that mantle as sort of the face of the band, the spokesperson for the band, if you will, and was able to have that personality, not only on stage, but in interviews and in all kind of the PR work that's necessary to kind of frame up what the band can mean to people. And he definitely did that too. That was one of the roles that he, that he had. You mentioned Sammy Hagar and, in the, I read one of the excerpts of the book, and of course, encourage everybody to get it. We'll have links up at wgnradio.com for Greg's book uh, about Ted Templeman. But uh, you mentioned Sammy Hager, and I was surprised to see in one of the excerpts is that Sammy was actually in some of those conversations as a replacement for Dave in the original yeah. versions of Van Halen. So, so obviously that was a that was a conversation at random of all the people in the whole world. Really okay, but then now. Are you surprised with everything that's happened on the success side with both kind of incarnations of the band that 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 argument still to this <laughs> to this day kind of I don't want to say rages but it's still a debate today. It's a weird. It's a really a weird. You know, it's kind of a weird. I don't know if coincidence is the right word, but it's a real coming a full circle. Obviously, where where Ted when he was sort of mulling over like what happened to Dave can't pull it off as a studio performer. What am I going to do with this band? You know, uh, I could maybe you know, get them to consider Sammy. And Ted talked about how he basically, you know, kept that almost all to himself and he didn't tell the guys about that, but yeah, you know, come six, seven years later or whatever, you know, it comes around that Sammy's the guy. And, um, you know, the Ed and Al had met Sammy on the road at some, in some festivals along the years. And, you know, he was, you know, it kind of goes back to the original instinct that Sammy, even though Ted didn't like that version of Van Halen, I mean, Sammy obviously was a guy who could pull it off. He was the guy who had the, uh, had the uh, charisma and had the, you know, kind of the, the, the lack of the balls to be able to be the guy to replace David Lee Roth. I mean, that's the thing. A lot of guys couldn't have done that. They would have just kind of shrunk up under the pressure of it. And just, you know, if that's, those are huge, as we all know, like huge, huge shoes to fill in for Sammy to be able to do that. And, you know, again, whether people love the Sammy uh, era of Van Halen or not like it, you have to give the guy credit for being able to stand in there and have those hit records with those guys and be able to kind of fill that, fill that, um, that role, which was not an easy role to fill as a front man of Van Halen. So yeah, all credit to Sammy for that. Yeah. I mean, well, he had, he has, you know, the, he has the ability on the singing side to do it. And he's, he is a showman, albeit a different showman. Have you ever seen just as a, as an observer of the, of the music scene over the years? I mean, there's bands and cause undeniably the success is there and people will say as far as album sales and all that. And, and I'm sure the, you know, the foundation was laid by the original lineup, but that, you know, success wise, you know, you can point to those, you know, Hagar era Van Halen, um, albums as as more, more, successful but have you ever seen it you know there's bands that are successful and have maybe you know lineups interchanged at the rivalry not only by the the guys themselves whether regardless and of course sammy's always been more passive about you know how he feels about it but the rivalry 
among the singers themselves and then the fan base it is no one it it seems like yeah. it is really hard for people to just be you know all inclusive van halen fans usually people pick and choose it's interesting it's almost like a political thing for people you know I, you know, one one comparison that's, that's there that's worth considering is uh, is Ozzy and Dio, and they sniped at each other, you know, pretty good in the in the eighties, kind of some back and forth. But for whatever reason, it never really, you know, it never really gravitated to that level of sort of um, to sort of dis- dislike. I think I think you know partially because Ozzy went on and had such a successful solo career that really, in some ways, obviously he he's uh, super, you know superseded Sabbath in the, in the eighties. I think, I think that's pretty clear is that Ozzy obviously had a much more successful musical career in the eighties than, uh, any of the IOMI lineups did beyond the, you know, the Dio stuff. But, uh, and of course the other thing that's interesting is that uh, Ronnie passed. And I think that took a lot of, a lot of the, anywhere edge out of that sort of where Ronnie sort of became this, you know, it just became kind of irrelevant to fight about it because Ronnie had passed away. But yeah, it's not the same. It's not even close really. It's like two different universes in terms of <laughs> contentiveness. You know, there's very few people who are willing to like, you know, say they're they're going to die on this hill about Ozzy versus Ronnie James Dio. Like, but Van Halen fans, yeah, there's no question. It's uh, it is a uh, continual, continual uh, battle. I mean, to this day, I mean, you see it. Yeah, and you're pretty really prolific right. on social media, and people, you know, are like, "Oh my gosh," you know, and you know, and and they get, oh, they get really critical and. I don't know how you, I don't know, you know, I'm a lot, you mentioned a bunch of different bands that may have been, you know, the popular bands of the time when Van Halen was getting chosen for their uh, record contract. And I like them all, you know, I like, I like music and I'm, you know, I'm not, not a fan of, of the Sammy Hagar versions of Van Halen. I grew up with, with Dave and obviously, and he was, you know, one of the kind of the great kind of shining lights in my kind of musical coming of age. So I'm partial, but, but I, you know, but I'm not like one of those, it's like Bears Packers, you know, <laughs> like you can't like one without hating the other. It really it really, it really is. I mean, I, again, I, I think about it. I mean, you know, with, with Bond versus Brian, there are people who will, you know, talk about how they don't like the Brian stuff or the, you know, whatever it is. But of course, Bond is gone, and um, you know, Brian is Brian's still around. So that's again the same type of thing. But it's never, it's never even, yeah, it's never even close to the same type of vitriol you get. I mean, it's just, you know, all I have to do in my Twitter page is post a picture of Sammy, and immediately, <laughs> you know, it's like guaranteed. Uh, you just post a picture of Sammy, Sammy eating a taco or something, and it's like, you know, it's, it's all it's on. You know, it's like whatever. It's just like you know, people go crazy, and it's just like you know, Ross people. It's like he's just eating a taco, man. He's not doing anything to you, but you know, people people take it very seriously. So it's you know, it kind of shows how important the band was to people as well. And you know, I think the other thing is that the band definitely changed. And I think the thing that is interesting and I think is right is that Sammy has talked about this a couple of times recently where he's like, you know, people are all over me about the keyboard stuff. He's like, I didn't write the music. You know, Eddie presented it to me. I just wrote the, you know, I wrote the melodies and wrote the lyrics for it, which is, which is true. You know, I think it wasn't, I don't think Sammy woke up, you know, uh, the morning he joined Van Halen and said, I'm going to, you know, turn Eddie Van Halen into the, you know, the keyboard ballad guy. Right. That was the type of stuff actually that Eddie was writing and that, um, to be honest, Ted Templeman wasn't that crazy about it, and Dave wasn't that crazy about it, which is part of the reason why the band with Dave particularly fractured, because there's just that musical difference of opinion. That was like one one piece of it. But, you know, Sammy was willing to take these things, like Dreams, for example, that's a great um, song sure. to point to, because Dreams, from what I understand, was, was kicking around when they were making 1984. It was just one of the ideas that Ed had, like, oh, here, what do you guys think about this? And they were like, nah. You know, Dave was like, nah. 
Now, Sammy heard that, and they turned it into a monster hit. Yeah, I think I think different strengths in different ways, and and it's almost crazy to think of it as you know a little bit about the backstory and kind of the personalities of the guys that you could go ahead and change Eddie and make him do something he didn't want to do. A quiet guy, really, with as far as words, you know, wasn't always out there talking, but he was he was really kind of the driving force of what happened or didn't happen or even who was yeah. was in the band. I, I wondered, you know, and of course, let the listeners know we're talking with Greg Renoff, uh, author of the current book Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life. In music is is how did he see it? Obviously, I think from a producer standpoint, you're selling a lot of albums. You found somebody that fit and was successful. That's not an easy thing. In fact, it's almost an impossible thing to do. But how did he come down on it? Did he ultimately have a preference? Well, you know, Ted, when he was uh, in the in that position in 1985, I mean, think he was already expecting that he was not going to produce the follow up to, to 1984. There had been a lot of contentiousness around the um the making 1984 and, and ted and dave there'd been a lot of strife between basically the two camps so ed being one and dave and ted you know kind of roughly speaking in another camp that's kind of the way we could kind of sketch it out but you know um when they broke up i mean ted talked to me at great length about the fact that he was he was immediately you know kind of trying to get these guys to get you know get back in the same room and you know patch it up he did not want the band to split up under any circumstances and then when sammy came around i mean the thing that's interesting is that um, Ed and Al, particularly when they were looking for a producer and Warner Brothers wanted them to get basically a, a name producer to work up with their next record with Sammy. I mean, Sammy seemed like the obvious thing that Ted would like. Ted had produced Paper Money. Ted had produced uh, the Montrose debuts. You know, it's that and Ted had just done BOA just earlier that that year, uh, last year, excuse me, with with Sammy and had a huge hit with I Can't Drive Fifty Five and Two Sides of Love. I mean, that stuff was all was all big um, a big success, but Ted basically passed um because he he kept telling the guys it's not van halen to me without dave and right. that of course offended ed and al understandably so i mean they <laughs> felt like it was their band and that right. you know um but for for and it had you know and ted went to great pains to try to explain it was no offense against sammy you know i like sammy i you know like he's a friend i he's a great singer you know kind of all the things you would ima- imagine saying but he's like i didn't want anybody in there you know i didn't want mick jagger in there i didn't want you know, Roger Daltrey. I didn't want anybody in Van Halen except Dave. It just wasn't Van Halen to me, and uh, that caused a lot of uh, a lot of contentiousness, as you might imagine. And uh, in, in the end, um, you know, Ted ended up going to produce Dave's next record. Yeah. And uh, but he, yeah, he was he was actually invited to produce Fifty One Fifty and and passed on it, which which was uh, you know a difficult thing for Ted because it just caused a lot of as you might imagine a lot of rough raw feelings between a lot of people when you know all Ted was trying to say is like to me. This doesn't seem like Van Halen. I, I, and you know, and you hit on it, Greg, because I really feel like, as opposed to maybe you know interchanging some band members in in one band or another, where it really really still does feel like the same band. Honestly, and I don't know that I've ever thought of it exactly like this before. They're they're really two totally separate bands. I mean, granted, you've got they're playing you know some of the hits of each and all that kind of stuff, but if, just from the the feel and the vibe and the edge, and I think just because of the strength of of David Lee Ross' personality and what he brought and meant to that band that I really do believe that they are, they are yeah. really two separate bands, really. Well, Ted talked about that to me, too. He said one of the things he, you know, at the very, when they were kind of going back and forth, for lack of a better term, negotiating um, with that idea of Ted producing the record, Ted said, look, I'll do it if you change the name. And the brothers, again, understandably so, I would, I, <laughs> I would think anyone would understand this. They're like, it's our name. Like, what do you mean change the name? You know, you know, we're not changing the name of the band. It's our last name. And I think, 
you know, that but was, for Ted, Craig, that sounds like such a crazy request. I mean, obviously hindsight, we have it all, but that just seems even like that would be a tough sell to walk into a room and that's your conversation started. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think, I mean, I think he was just, you know, I think for him, he just couldn't stomach it. I mean, he just, that's what he kept telling me. It just, you know, I think in the same sort of way, if you imagine it with, with, you know, I think if people think about it objectively, I mean, Dio fronted Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell doesn't really sound, the album doesn't really sound a lot like, um, you know, volume four. And I could kind of understand it's like not the same thing where, you know, it's, again, it's the same band name, three of the same guys, but it, it's, it's Black Sabbath, but again, it's, it's not the same Black Sabbath. I think that's what Ted was trying to, to get at. But yeah, he was really, um, he was really adamant about it. I mean, he really felt, you know, and uh, again, with all sorts of, you know, compliments for Sammy throughout the book, he's very complimentary of him and, and really personally likes the guy a ton. I mean, he really does consider him a friend. He just said it was just a difficult, difficult thing because those guys expected me to be like, oh, that's great. You know, you got Sammy. I love Sammy. Let's, let's go. You know, and they, he was like, no, I don't want to do this. Well, and you see how difficult it is to interchange through a few different incarnations where they try to take other people and kind of place them in that role. And, and both sides of the of the fan bases of each um, version of the band just, just couldn't take it, right? So maybe Sammy was the one guy that could help create something that was maybe, I don't want to say greater than the sum of the parts, but totally different and great uh, with the sum of those parts, you know, with that with that other band. And if anybody thought that, um, that Eddie and Alex weren't, or really Eddie and then Alex along with Eddie, weren't really sort of you know steering the good ship van halen i mean you look at what happened with michael anthony like by all accounts you know a, a super affable nice great guy accomplished player and all that and for him not to be included you know based on whether personalities and of course you want to get your family involved with things i mean you see that eddie was really in charge of the whole thing yeah and i think that definitely i mean certainly that became increasingly clear as time went, time went on. And, uh, you know, but it's for me as a guy who wrote a book about their early days, it, you know, it kind of all came full circle if you think about it, because at the very beginning, you know, the brothers asked Dave to join, you know, and Dave, yeah. you know, was the guy who came up with the idea to name the band Van Halen. Um, but you know, it was the brother's band and the, and Dave basically, you know, lack of a better one kind of begged his way into the band and all for the better, obviously did, you know, did amazing as their singer over the years, but you know, it was their, their thing from the beginning. And I think that never really in some ways, some ways changed in their minds. You know, Dave was always the guy who, um, you know, was, was basically benefiting from their talent. And again, I, you know, that, that's, that's obviously goes both ways. We, we get that, but I think that's one of the things that if people think about it, what really irked the brothers in 1985 was the, was the solo record, um, which Ted talked about in the book, the basically, sorry, the solo EP that Ted did with Dave, uh, with California girls and the covers, which was meant to be sort of a fun, placeholder as Ted kind of described just to kind of buy the band some time to kind of get their stuff together after, you know, being on the road for so long and there was a lot of personality problems. And, but, uh, you know, I know from what Ted told me and this, you know, kind of, you can hear in the uh, interviews that those guys did at the time that they were, they were pretty pissed off about it because they felt like Dave was basically using them as a platform to elevate his own career. Like basically, you know, stepping on their heads to put himself above everybody else, you know, which, you know, in some ways may not be a fair way to look at it, but that's the way they saw it. That's, that's their only perspective. That's their lens, you know, and they know the backstory and the origin story and all that kind of stuff. And I, I gotta say, I'm a, a fan of, of, of all of it. You know, I, I was, I, I, even without just based on Eddie's playing in the band and my support for him, I, I went to that first tour of those concerts for the 5150 tour. When it came to, to Dave on his yep. solo stuff, I was, I was working at, at Alpine Valley. And of course, we've done, 
shared some social media about that for Dave's, you know, I don't know if it was the, you know, what tour it was, maybe skyscrapers or something like that. And so I've, I've seen those and have been a fan of all of those people. Thank God, regardless of, of what happens and how people feel about it, that they were together all these different kind of versions in order to create some of the most memorable and successful music of all time that even decades later, we're still talking about and you're writing books about last thing before we get, of course, we'll have links up at WGNRadio.com. You think of Ted Templeman. I think of LA. I think of the club scene. I think of all those bands. Tulsa, right? That's where you are. You're calling us from Tulsa today, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Ted Templeman is, is there, is there something we don't know about Tulsa as far as maybe the amenities, maybe the views, maybe the food scene? What is it that makes it the place where he's at too? Yeah, it's it's really I think a city on the rise. I mean, I think the uh, the vision for Tulsa is to sort of make it a you know a uh, a, a, a Tulsa should be uh, Oklahoma's version of Austin, Texas, and that's really what's what's nice. coming up. The food scene is really really great, and there's um, a museum uh, that's about to open, which is called the OK Pop Museum, which is going to be dedicated to the musical history of Oklahoma. And it's actually going to be right across the street from Kane's Ballroom, which is a, you know a venue that's been around for decades and decades, and anyone. Whoever gets to Tulsa, Oklahoma, should definitely go check out Canes. Whether it's you know having a show or not, you should try to get down there and check it out because it's such a landmark, mark venue. But uh, there's just you know a, a big uh, urban revitalization going on, and we've got the uh, the BOK Center, which is a state of the art new arena that's up, and it's just it's been a good place for me to uh, kind of spend the last ten years. I ended up here kind of uh, unexpectedly, so to speak, by marriage. It is how things work out sometimes, but it's been great. I really enjoyed it, and. Uh, definitely would encourage people to come uh, come check it out you know one of the things of course that we have uh, is an affinity for van halen obviously live music and i cannot wait for people and i'm sure a lot of the listeners too are, are excited to be able to get out there and enjoy some live music i know we're in the middle of the big pandemic as we speak so that is difficult one way to kind of fill that void is to get in there and read this book your new book ted templeman a platinum producer's life in music and so greg as we let you go give information where people can get it um you know where people can either get more information on on uh, your adventures, maybe some of the social media and all the kind of things you've got going. Sure, yeah. If people are interested in uh, signed copies of the book, I have them at templemanbook.com. But more generally, in terms of social media, best way to reach me is uh, at Greg Renoff, G-R-E-G-R-E-N-O-F-F, uh, on Twitter. That's probably the best way to reach me. And I'm, I'm uh, always enjoying, as Dane knows, a good conversation about whatever, but mostly about Van Halen and all the iterations. We have a lot of... Uh, interesting conversations on a set of cases with the fans there and so would uh, you know would love to talk about that stuff or your adventures at Alpine Valley I know we've talked about it on Twitter it's been, uh, been fun oh yeah that's uh, for another time and uh, thanks Greg appreciate uh, everything that you're doing of course and thanks for jumping on the show tonight thanks again thanks again